Welcome to today's SNEB Journal Club uh, webinar. My name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for our presentation today. Um, I'll start us off with some housekeeping. If you look in the GoToWebinar tool panel, you'll see the slides for today's presentation. Uh, so please download those and follow along. We will take questions at the end of the presentation, so please type your questions in the question blocks so we can moderate those to our presenter. Uh, when I close the survey, there is a short or webinar, there's a short survey. We appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas. Kristen and I were just talking about Journal Club for the fall, so any ideas uh, for future Journal Club themes would appreciate those as well. And then watch for the follow up email um, on Wednesday of this week with a link to the recording, uh, the handout, and the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. So I will introduce and turn things over to our moderator. Uh, Dr. Kristen DeFilippo is a teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Today, our speaker is Taryn Swindle, who is an associate professor in family and preventive medicine within the College of Medicine at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences. Dr. Swindle has a particular focus on obesity prevention and nutrition promotion for young children impacted by poverty. She is interested in increasing adoption of evidence-based practices and interventions in community settings through application of implementation science. Today, she's going to be talking about the methods behind her work, uh, mixed methods exploration of barriers and facilitators to evidence-based practices for obesity prevention and Head Start. I want to thank Dr. Swindle for joining us today, and at this point, I can pass it over to her. Wonderful. Thank you all so much for having me. It's a joy to be with you uh, and to, to participate in today's webinar. I'm going to start with a few funding disclosures and just acknowledge that the funding sources in bold are the ones that funded this project directly and the other funding sources are, are those that I'm currently receiving. So I wanted to provide some transparency around that. And then acknowledge that the publication that I'm speaking about today was published in JNEB in 2019. So a pre-COVID world and a lot of things have happened since that time, uh, but we're gonna take a time trip back today and talk about a topic that I bet you have also experienced in your own work, which is we get a good program, we're gonna do it in an ideal way in a community setting, at least that's what we think in our minds, and the things don't go as we planned. And that is kind of the backdrop that led us to do the work that we're gonna be talking about today. So as we move through the day, we'll address the competencies related to talking about theory-based uh, mediators and facilitators behavior change. We'll also talk about participatory approaches to research, including those that came after the current study I'll be talking about, and also how we might analyze, evaluate, and interpret research to apply to our practice. So let's start with a bit of background. So we know that many children, over 11 million in the United States, use childcare, some kind of childcare service outside their home. And we know that what happens in these settings matters. There's research to support that feeding practices in these settings helps to predict a child's growth trajectory, their ability to self-regulate, and also their own dietary preferences. These is important to understand in light of what we also know about what some of these practices are. So for example, we know that educators are 10 times more likely to pressure a child to eat 
than to cue them to hunger and satiety. So if we think about, again, the scope of the influence that that might have, it can be quite concerning. If you think about a typical school year, there are about 540 meals and snacks in a nine month school year. And if they have 10 or 20 rather students in their classroom, which is pretty typical for um, like a four to five year old classroom, that would be 10,800 different food interactions in that school year, even apart from any additional nutrition education. So that's a huge opportunity for impact. So we have an intervention called WISE, and that's Wendy WISE there at the top. And WISE stands for Together We Inspire Smart Eating. And it is intended to be implemented across the entirety of the school year, eight distinct units, each gets a month, and they are simple, low-cost opportunities for children to have interactions with uh, healthy fruits and vegetables. And the interactions or the lessons are implemented by the teachers themselves. Throughout the intervention, regardless of the lesson that they are doing, we ask teachers to use four key evidence-based practices. We want them to use a map plot, so that's Wendy Wise, during the activity and to lead a who tried it chant with the children. We also want teachers to role model, to eat the food with the children and make positive comments about target foods. The next thing that we hope happens are hands-on exposures. We want these lessons to be happening in a small group size so that children can have the kind of experience that we see in this photo, really hands-on. And then finally, we hope teachers will use positive feeding practices, do things like cue children to their hunger and satiety and encourage their food exploration and support their trying without pressure. So based on our prior work, we have some promising results of our intervention. We have been able to demonstrate a shift and improvement in educator knowledge, which is sustained over time. We also know that WISE performs, outperforms rather standard of care in Head Start for improving child dietary intake of fruits and vegetables. And these findings are supported by biomarker results. You might've heard of the veggie meter or resonance Raman spectroscopy as a way to measure carotenoid intake in the skin. And the increases that we see are supported by those increases in those scan values. And then most recently, we've been able to demonstrate that the more that children pester their parents about WISE and Wendy, the more their parents improve in offering those foods and also uh, related parenting practices. For example, including child, children in the shopping or food preparation. So as I mentioned, the backdrop of what led us all to this work is something you've likely experienced. You go out in the field and you're gonna do something great and then the best laid plans, right? And that's what we were seeing with WISE. In some classrooms, because I, I observed probably over 100 different WISE lessons, and sometimes we would see that things would go really well, really beautifully, and children have a wonderful experience, and you just, you're, you're blown away. And other times, teachers really struggled to be able to use this evidence-based practices. And so we started to, with this work, dig into a deviance approach to understand that natural variability in their use of the evidence-based practices. So those that were positively deviant are on the far end in terms of a positive use of the practices, where those that were negatively deviant were struggling or at the tail end of being able to uptake those evidence-based practices. And we did this all in light of an implementation science lens. So the theoretical framework that we use is called IPARIS, 
And it, I love iParis as an implementation science framework because of its simplicity and pragmatism. There are th three key constructs that we want to consider. The first is the evidence. And this is the research evidence that exists for our practice, but also how the implementers feel about or perceive that evidence. The second thing is context. We know that wherever the evidence is hoping to be used matters, context matters, and things like the culture, leadership, et cetera. And then finally, facilitation is what needs to happen to support impl implementation depending on the evidence and context. So what I mean by that is it might take a stronger facilitation effort if either the evidence or perceptions of evidence or the context are weaker. So let's talk just for a moment about the study purpose before we dig into design. So as I mentioned, we wanted to identify positive and negative deviant cases of the fidelity using quantitative data. And then we want to explore that through interviews with deviant cases. So this is, as, a, as the title gives away, it's a mixed method study. And we're going to talk about how we use both kinds of data to get to the bottom of this issue to understand what was going on with all of the differences that we see in the field. So with our study design, we use an exploratory sequential design. So what that means is the quantitative data came first with the purpose of the qualitative data to explore what we found in the quantitative data, using it to really answer questions that were raised by the quantitative data. So the question that we had raised by the quantitative data is where is this variation coming from? And then the qualitative data was able to provide answers to that question. So the first step in this work was to develop a, an assessment of fidelity across those evidence-based practices that I mentioned. And we have published on this in prior work as well. And I'm sharing here so you can get a little bit more idea of the level of detail that we take when we're looking at fidelity. So our Observers are trained to gold standards and they demonstrate reliability in the field at their ability to do these assessments. And we have anchors for our fidelity questions so that they can con consistently, between observers, rate the fidelity elements with reliability. So let's unpack one just, just briefly. So for the use of the mascot, for example, when we have teachers with high fidelity, we see that they use the mascot in a way that is integral to the lesson with enthusiasm. But on the other end of the continuum, low fidelity would mean that they don't mention the mascot and really Wendy doesn't show up at their lesson. So for every component of our different fidelity or key components, we have these anchors to define fidelity. And when we're thinking about deviance, we wanted scores across the components in that, in that evidence-based practice to average a three or greater to be designated as a positive deviant, whereas those on the lower end were less than two. Uh, so we can unpack that more as we go as well. So as I mentioned, we use iParis to drive our work, and I wanted to share just some of the sample questions that were uh, in the interviews. So we again, we wanted to understand variation in implementation. So we asked questions like, what in the process helped you get WISE implemented? What was the barrier? And then to understand context, we ask questions like, how did directors support you or hinder you? And then we also wanted to understand their perceptions of the evidence. So what program aspects of the program work 
and why do you think that is? So those were general construct questions that we asked. And then as it related to the innovation, which are those evidence-based practices, we tailored the interview questions to reflect what we knew about their practices. So if we knew that a teacher was struggling with role modeling, we would ask this question differently than if we knew that they were succeeding. So uh, if they're struggling, we ask, what about this didn't work for you? And you can see that we, uh, how we did that there. On average, these interviews were 45 minutes long and they ranged from 23 minutes to I think about 100 minutes. So the practice of qualitative coding, we started by transcriptions that were done by an external contractor that we imported into NVivo. And then we did a pragmatic directed content analysis. So what I mean by that is we were really drawing on iParis to drive our analysis. We started with an iParis driven code book and we co-coded in tandem an interview. So myself and a research assistant to refine that code book. Then we went away and co-coded four more interviews before coming back to build consensus refine the codebook further. And then we established that we had an inter-rater reliability of 0.7 before independently coding. And we met, as we were moving through the coding practice, on a bi-weekly basis so that we could come together to resolve uh, inconsistencies and get clarification together. So this is the coding scheme that we use. And as I mentioned, it was directed and it had three levels of directedness. So as we coded transcripts, we were interested in coding which of the iParis constructs that a quote mapped onto, which of the wise evidence-based practices that it mapped onto, and whether what the participants were sharing highlighted a barrier or facilitator to use of that practice. So let's get into some results. So first are quantitative results. So you can see that in the initial implementation, this was in a USDA funded study, the initial implementation of WISE, the targets for hitting fidelity were not quite what we wanted. So role modeling, they were able to improve across the school year as they were with using the math guide. However, as time went on, they dropped off in their ability to offer hands-on exposures and the positive feeding practices were never terribly high to start and got worse over time. Based on those observations, we were able to do the following. We had 49 classes that were observed for that fidelity and from that quantitative data, we were able to look at who was positively and negatively deviant. We identified 24 cases that were on the low end pretty consistently, and we recruited, and when I say that, I mean for three or four, three of the four practices, and we recruited 10 of those. We only identified three cases that were positively deviant for three of the four practices, and we were able to recruit two. So with that, we had to, to, to increase our sample size. We had to have more that kind of fell in the middle. And so we had ended up having 17 cases who were a mix of practices. And I'll show you what that mean by that. So they sometimes would be positively deviant in one practice, but maybe not so in others. So just a moment with the sample demographics. 
so with the qualitative study, we saw that about 64% of those that participated were African-American. And um, this, and you can see how the numbers played out as we moved to the quantitative sample. So just slightly more whites in the quantitative uh, sample than in the, in the qual. So now let's talk about what I was mentioning, which is that we weren't able to get as many of the fully positive and the fully negative deviant cases across the four practices. It was more of the teachers excelled in some but struggled in others. And so the pure cases weren't as common as this mix. So you can see that we had the most excellent positive deviants on the practice of role modeling. And we were able to see 18 of those that were hitting those high levels of fidelity that we wanted to see. Now, conversely, on the other end, we were only able to identify five cases that were positively deviant in their feeding practices. Um, and you can see how it fell for the other two as well. So it, it highlights how with a training effort, with an, an, you know, our initial implementation, there's some practices that were just harder for teachers to uptake than others. So we began to dig into the results with the qualitative portion next, again, using the coding process that I mentioned. So we're gonna move through each of the iPairs constructs and I'm gonna tell you more about what we learned about key barriers and facilitators. So in the area of context, a key barrier were educators' concerns about and their beliefs about the children's context. They often talked about food insecurity and how they needed to make sure children eat enough when they're at the site, and that prevented them from using some of the evidence-based practices that we asked. On the converse, center culture was really a positive. If they were taking time to um, be supported by their peers, for example, and it was a positive place to work. Similarly, a really important facilitator of use of, of best practices were where their meals were happening and the policy around those things and their nutrition education experiences. There were other factors that kind of spanned both bears and facilitators depending on who you talk to. And so a key example of that is leadership support. In some sites, we saw and heard about excellent leadership that really helped to get this intervention into practice. Teacher or leaders were checking in with teachers to see what they needed. They were doing errands for them if necessary. In other cases, they might have talked negatively about the intervention. So it could go both ways. And the same is true for mechanisms for embedding change. Some of our sites that really did well put a discussion of the intervention into their regularly occurring faculty meetings, and that was a key mechanism for embedding the change. But others that didn't have those kinds of processes to institutionalize the intervention really struggled to get it going. So this uh, quote says, the director was always willing to help me get that food experience in. If I needed something, she was there. She was just always supporting. Um, another quote that we heard about the culture is that, you know, we're always interested in having new things. What we want to do is make children aware of the world. So any experience to help them, I welcome it. And that gives a flavor of that really positive culture. Now, when it came to recipients, we'll do the same thing. We'll look at some barriers and facilitators. So a key barrier was classroom management. Teachers that struggled to manage their classroom struggled to do the intervention. So one teacher said, you know, it's hard to fit it in because you're supposed to be doing the 
the in groups and what if they're what are the other children going to be doing so just even conceptualizing how to run small groups was hard for some teachers even though that's a pretty standard practice in early care and education facilitators though were when they were able to personalize wise to themselves so sometimes they put costumes on the mascot or give her a silly voice and that that process of personalization seemed to really increase their buy-in motivation to keep things going and then beliefs about what works this went both ways some teachers did not believe that small groups were helpful or necessary were not going to try them their kids were well behaved and didn't need it whereas others really bought into that and saw how that increased hands-on exposure as an example so I, I got ahead of myself but this this quote illustrates what i'm saying I just didn't think that small group is good for three-year-olds. I didn't think it was uh, because of their attention spans. I just prefer large group. So you can see she didn't believe or buy into that that, that worked. Um, and then another teacher talked about when it's ready, when it's time to allow children to decide if they're hungry or full. She she mentioned that she didn't think that she could trust them, uh, and she she didn't think they were old enough to know that about themselves. When it come, came time to discuss the innovation, there were, in that meaning, the wise intervention itself, we saw some things that may not surprise you in terms of barriers. The time and preparation was the key thing. Um, having enough time really was a struggle. Use of appliance was also a barrier, even though we made sure that the appliance use was in line with safety policies that continue to be a concern for some educators. Facilitators of the intervention, however, were finding that it fit with their curriculum, integrating it into their teaching and connecting it with their parents, uh, parent engagement efforts, but also their personal health. And then the resources that WISE provided them were seen as helpful. So um, one educator noted, you can always tie it into your counting, your literacy, your vocabulary, you know, you can still do it. The teaching is not stopping. It's going all throughout the activity. Another teacher noted that she had never used a blender before and that that really made a difference for her because she had been a single mom. So this was her first experience with a blender and she really highly valued that. Now we'll talk about facilitation. And a barrier that they mentioned was that they really wished that they had had opportunities for additional training. Because in this initial, this initial implementation of WISE, like many programs, there was the six-hour one-time training and then teachers were set out to do on their own. And they hoped for more support than that. However, they did value that the training itself was interactive and tend to retain a lot of that information and uh, describe it as impactful. So one teacher said, knowledge is the key to everything. So just train, train, train. And when a new educational idea comes up, that's all you hear about for years and years. And this quote really stood out to me because uh, conscious discipline is another example in the early care and education space. And she's right. They don't train on it one time. They train on it again and again and again. And that may be a practical issue we need to consider for work in the early care and education space is that they, they may need repeat trainings for years. All right, so I want to dig in a little bit to some discussion and just note that some of the key takeaways that we found important in this study is that we were able to leverage this full spectrum of fidelity, which was important for us to get variability in how we were seeing the implementation effort go 
uh, initially. And so if we had just stuck to the middle and the end, we wouldn't have been able to get more of those folks that were in the mix in the middle. And that uh, was really needed for us to, to have a full sample size. So we were able to do that and to describe what we got. We were able to apply existing theories and frameworks of implementation science and think that this is a huge opportunity for the field of nutrition education in terms of analyzing the work that we do and understanding what is impacting our ability to succeed with our implementation work. So because just because an intervention maybe doesn't have positive effects at that first randomized controlled trial, that could be because the intervention doesn't work or it could be because the implementation didn't work. So we need to understand that difference and really use implementation science to do so. In this study, we found that leadership and turnover were key contextual factors. So in early care and education on the whole, turnover rates are at about 20% year over year. But in the work that we were doing, even you know, pre-COVID, we were seeing rates as high as 40 to 60% in, in our state. So, and I think that on the, in the field of the whole, turnover has gotten even worse since COVID. So this suggests we may have really important work to do in terms of workforce development, policy, advocating for appropriate teacher wages, all kinds of things to get that number down because any work that we do to implement new things is gonna be impacted by this high rate of turnover. Another thing is that there are many factors beyond a teacher's control. She cannot control if the children she serves are food insecure. She cannot control where the meal is happening. She can't control if she has the resources needed to do the kind of work she'd like to do. So in what we try to focus on going forward were those things that were modifiable things about what a teacher believes about what works and the skills that she has in her classroom to manage um, a setting so that she can do important nutrition education practices. And then finally, we think that it's going to be really important to align interventions with EC standards if you're hoping to do nutrition education in this setting. It's really too much to ask to ask them to tack it on to other things that are in their curriculum. They are just tapped out. So we have to be sure that we're mashing two potatoes with one fork, so to say, and uh, really getting them what they need in terms of their standards completed while they're doing nutrition education. So this study had a, a, some strengths and limitations. We felt like a key strength was that we did a robust fidelity assessment that informed the quantitative sampling. And so we were able to tie that quant and qual data really carefully together. And then we focused on understanding stakeholder perspectives. So we talked about the importance of involving stakeholders in research and qualitative work is one way to do that. I'm gonna talk about some other ways we've done that since, but it's a key way to really make sure that their voice is centered. We could have, as researchers, done our own kind of needs assessment or um, postulation about what the key bearers and facilitators were from our view, but it was more important to understand their view uh, and so that we thought that was an important strength of this work. Some limitations were that this was in a limited geographical uh, setting. It was all in, in my state and all were head starts. And so if you wanted to understand barriers and facilitators to evidence-based practice use in early care and education more broadly, of course the work would need to be expanded beyond our setting. And then finally we were able to identify only a few fully positive deviant cases. And so that illustrates kind of the starting point of where we, at, where we are at for implementing things in early care and education. 
and, and the amount of work that there is to do. So I want to, I went through that in less time than I needed to on purpose because I wanted to share with you some things that have happened after this study. So as I mentioned, this study was published in 2019 and it was key formative work to, to really help us do better. We didn't just want to know this for knowledge sake, we wanted to be able to implement better. So we formed a uh, quality improvement panel full of early care and education stakeholders. So this included directors, food service staff, family service coordinators, teachers, assistant teachers, and even a parent to help us identify what was most important in that work and make some plans to go forward. Because the, the article that I'm sharing with you today, we identified over 70 distinct barriers and facilitators. We couldn't possibly attend to all of those. And so this group really helped us to determine what was most important. So here are some of the ways that we did that. So when we um, did the shuffle, we had them write on an index card the most important thing that they were taking away from the, our discussions for the day. And then they shuffled them around and talked about other people's perspectives. When we use a magic wand exercise, we, we propose to them a barrier and say, if you had a magic wand, what would you do to resolve this issue? And they also do um, collaborative work around solution engineers. So we maybe have a scenario that's really specific and they draft a potential solution. And then concept mapping at the end of our collaborative process with these stakeholders included taking the barriers and facilitators that they had prioritized, mapping them to potential implementation strategies which are in the list here, and then having them write how important and feasible those strategies were. And so the go zone, that's that top quadrant that you see there in the green, those were strategies that stakeholders identified both as important and feasible to moving forward to address the barriers and facilitators that they had prioritized. So these are the barriers that they, that they put at the top of the list. They felt it was really important that at the context level, we address leadership support, capacity, and climate for change. As it related to the innovation, we needed to be sensitive to the time needs of teachers and increase their perception of the fit and advantage, which would also help with this perception of time issue. And then finally, when it came to the recipients, they thought it was most important that we prioritize those classroom skills and beliefs. And so there are a lot of words here. You don't need to read them all, but let me just walk you through how this uh, kind of what we're hoping happens as we prioritize barriers, select strategies, and move forward. So since they identified that leadership support was a key barrier, the strategies that we prioritized for addressing that were having onboarding meetings with those leadership, having co-signed agreement uh, forms to commit, and then walking them through an implementation blueprint so that leaders knew what to expect at each stage of WISE implementation. Our hope was that these strategies would increase their buy-in and support and then increase norms and expectations around the implementation effort as well that would lead to improved feasibility and sustainability in intervention. And this is all related again to that theoretical construct of having that inner context local level support. So some of you are visual folks like myself and so you might prefer to see this in a visual format, what we ended up landing on. So this is that. 
This was the package of strategies that those stakeholders helped us to build. And so at the foundation, every site received external facilitation. And then uh, they also got context support and support for the educators or recipients. So as I mentioned, the context got a formal commitment form signed by their leadership, an implementation blueprint. And then we also trained a local champion to be able to advocate for the needs of WISE between their site and the research team. At the level of the teachers, we identified with stakeholders that they needed to be incentivized for their use of the practices, but then to have individualized education. So remember, they said they didn't have enough training. So we supplemented that with additional handouts and videos for the practices on which they continued to lag behind in their fidelity across the school year. And then they all got a cutting board reminder with the key evidence-based practices of WISE. So did it work? Well, we were able to publish our results of this trial last year, and there was some evidence that it worked. We had 5% higher reach in sites that were able to, that received the, the intervention strategies or the implementation strategies, rather. These sites also had significantly organizational readiness for change. And readiness is not a static construct. It, it changes as you move through an implementation effort. And by the end, we saw that sites that received those, that support had higher readiness. We also saw that they had increased, improved implementation for three of the four WISE evidence-based practices. And most of those improvements happened during the last quarter of the school year. So their gains were late, but they were significant. And then finally, we, we saw that WISE was perceived to be more appropriate and feasible by teachers that received the enhanced support. Now, we did not see that there was a translation to improve child outcomes. And our hypothesis is this is because of the late gains. So the, because the teachers weren't making their significant changes to that last part of the school year, wasn't enough time to translate to child outcomes. So we're thinking that you might need a longer timeline to be able to, to study how the changes in implementation then can uh, translate to changes for child development and child outcomes. So I'm going to stop there and welcome questions. And of course, thank you for being with me today. I noticed now that there's an error in my email. It's uh, tswindle at uams.edu. I must have been tired when I made this slide. So tswindle at uams.edu is my email. And then you can find me on Twitter. I'd love to connect with you there as well. So with that, I will open it up for questions. Thank you so much. Any questions can be placed in the question box and I'll read those out to Taryn. Um, so the first question I had, you had talked about the need for continuing support and training as being important and you had talked about the high turnover rate. How would you recommend providing training and support for new people without being repetitive with old people? Mm -hmm. uh, or not old people, but people who had already been involved in the program for a while, or is it just good to continue to rehear? Yeah, that was something that we built into the implementation strategy that we did in the subsequent study. And we did that in a couple different ways. First is the champions helped with that re retraining. Well, there's three things. We saw at mid-year that we had already had a 30% turnover. And because we had seen such a high rate, already higher than the national average at the middle of that implementation year in that study, we decided to have an impromptu um, mid-year training. 
So that's one thing we did. But then the turnover continued. So what we did in addition was have champions do demonstration lessons in the new teacher's classrooms and then have those external facilitators work with the new teachers on any questions they had and also getting them up to speed on um, the key, key practices and things. But it's a huge issue. And that's why I think that the, the key implication for some of this work is that workforce issues and capacity issues for settings like early care and education are so important for so many reasons. Nutrition is one and it's an important one, but there are so many reasons why that has got to come to the forefront, I think, with future research. Yeah. So another question is, how do you recruit and train uh, the champions? So we tried a couple different things. We tried self-nomination. So at training, we would introduce the concept of champion and say, you know, hey, does this sound like something you'd be interested in? And some teachers would come to us with um, an, a willingness to do that. We also tried where no one came forward, director nominated champions. And I cannot recommend that as a strategy. It's much, much more effective if the teacher herself comes forward. But those, we have tried both methods and uh, hope in the future we'll be able to leverage more of that volunteer. Uh, and, and oftentimes it's teachers that already are really interested in healthy eating or maybe they garden themselves or they have a personal connection to the intervention. So it may take getting the teacher, getting to know the teachers a little bit. And so I think a, a better strategy than having the directors pick somebody would be to get to know them and say, hey, I, I feel like you'd be great in this role. What do you think? And providing an invitation. So those would be the way I would tier it. Best strategy would be to volunteer. Second best would be to have an invitation to a teacher. And then third would be nominations. Thank you. So another question, if someone were going to involve, get involved in a mixed methods research project like this for the first time, what advice would you give to them about making sure that they had a well-prepared, well-designed uh, methodology? I think that a good first step would be to get really familiar with the options in terms of how you sequence and mix quantitative and qualitative data. I think that's a point where there tends to be some confusion, but it's really important. Are your qual data going to come first? Are your quant data going to come first? Are they going to happen at the same time? And then how are they really going to be mixed? Because the idea has to is not just that one happens and the other happens. It's that they come together at some point to inform one another in a meaningful way. And so I think get, getting really familiar with those options would be a good place to start. And that Cresswell and Clark reading is excellent for getting kind of familiar with some of those options, I think. Well, I wanna thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your time with us today. I know I learned a lot by listening to your research and we really appreciate, appreciate you. Yeah, well, it is, like I said, a treat for me to be here. It always is. And I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thank you. And Rachel, I think at this point I can pass it back to you. Did we lose Rachel? Oh, I can't hear you.
let's see if that works. <laughs> uh, thank you for the presentation today. Uh, just a reminder, there'll be a short survey when I close the webinar here in a moment, and then watch for your follow-up email on Wednesday of this week. Um, Journal Club is back next Monday. Um, actually, SNEB has three different webinars next week, so check the um, online um, webinar schedule to see uh, what you might want to participate in. Also, we're doing a special um, SNEB-wide um, racial equity challenge um, in conjunction with the New England Food System, so that information is on the website as well. Um, there'll be some um, daily readings from that organization and then weekly discussions with SNEB. And we're also hoping to launch um, registration for conference next week, um, both the in-person and the virtual options. So very busy time. So look forward to either seeing you online or perhaps in person in Atlanta in July. Bye-bye, thank you.